Welcome to Curious and Quirky. We believe curious leaders change the world. Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast-paced, five-minute-per-speaker, oh yeah, take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. Hi, thank you for joining us today. I'm Mary Abazia. I'm your host for this month's Curious and Quirky uh, session. And as with all of our sessions, what we'll be discussing are the most intriguing and insightful business topics from brilliant minds from Caltech's Executive Education. So if you have any questions, or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You Be sure to just put your thoughts into the chat and we'll be able to respond to that. I'm uh, very excited to introduce our first speaker, who uh, is my dear friend and highly innovative uh, colleague, Ryan Matamore, who's going to tell us about tennis score, which anything about tennis is very good topic. So Ryan, what is this all about? Well, thanks, Mary. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit out of my depth here, but I thought because it's so timely, I would talk about fashion in general and uh, innovation in fashion, and not so much from the standpoint of having a brilliant designer, but what are the principles that the fashion industry is using both to uh, identify, if you will, new platform opportunities or new genres of fashion styles, number one, and also how might they be using innovation to promote these products. And so, as Mary said, the first thing I want to talk about, again, because it's so timely, is something called tennis core. It's become, uh, if you will, the hot new thing. It's, it's all over social media now. And it was timely, obviously, because we just finished uh, the U.S. Open. And it's also been promoted at Fashion Week, which is going on in New York City. So, so what is Tennis Core? Let me set it up this way. You know, uh, there's a book that came out about five years ago. It's called Hitmakers. It's by Derek Thompson, who's a senior editor at, at Atlantic. And he did an in-depth study of, you know, what makes something a hit entertainment, you know, music and movies and books, et cetera, et cetera. And I can, I can save the listeners uh, <laughs> the time of not having to, to read the book. I think you can, for me at least, you could capture the essence of the, that book in two words, uh, the, what would make a hit. And that essence is familiar surprise. I'll say it again, familiar surprise. And the notion is that if you want to create a hit, you, you want something that's potentially familiar to people, right? So that there's a certain acceptance from the get-go, but also you need that energy and excitement and difference of something surprising, right? And so obviously the best example of this would be the sequels in the movie industry, right? We know these characters or, or online or, you know, uh, obviously TV series, et cetera. We know these characters and often the plots, but there's, there's surprising things going on, right? So what does that have to do with tennis core and tennis fashion? Well, tennis core really is a look to the past, fashion of, some have called this nouveau prep, 
right? The notion that these uh, these tennis styles could be very, if you will, preppy, right? Now, there are two elements to the surprise. So they have that classic look, you know, if you think of the 1970s Wimbledon players all in their nice whites, right? And uh, so they, they've somewhat got that classic look, but now they have obviously new colors, new materials. And so, yes, it rings the chord of familiarity with the past, yes, but it's also been updated to look sort of chic. Now, that's the first half of this that feels familiar surprise. Now, the other important principle behind the success of Tennis Corps, if you want to think of it as a portmanteau, right? A portmanteau is a mashing together of two different words, not unlike tennis and core, right? Core tennis, right? Or score, if you prefer to think of it that way. But what they've done in these new fashions for tennis is they've got athleisure, right? So we've all heard that term, right? Athleisure, it's a it's a mashup of athletic and leisure. And so the notion is that these uh, fashions uh, and there were some headlines uh, in the press this week about seeing the tennis shirts on the street or whatever, right? The, the notion that now people are able to wear these because they're so fashionably uh, when they go out in an leisure situation. So the bigger thought here is if we can leverage something that's familiar and surprising, right? But also that, that ties into a trend, right? It, it definitely ties into a lifestyle trend of convenience and comfort and all the rest. And Oprah's a big fan of this, et cetera. Then we, then we really may have something, all right? So let me give you an example of how this has uh, been leveraged with a specific brand, right? So I, I had never heard of this brand, but this is another example of Nouveau Prep. It's called Rowing Blazers, right? And so it's these very preppy... <laughs> happy looking things created by this guy, Jack Carlson. And so he said, how can I leverage this tennis core trend, if you will? So if you think, I'll do a little quiz here for the listener, who was had sort of the most preppy uh, outfit or, or was the cleanest cut, if you will, uh, tennis player, let's say in the 70s, right? Uh, we would not say McEnroe, right? He would be the last choice, right? So who might that be? And and once I say it, you, I, I think you'll agree, but you may not think of it because to me, it wasn't obvious. It was, I like to think it was Arthur Ashe. I mean, how, you know, sort of clean cut and, and proper and wonderful he always looked, right? On the court and in person. And I think that was in some ways a brilliant strategy because some of his more controversial ideas for ethnic equality, I think were more readily be accepted because he had this sort of very clean cut look and he was a terrific person as we know. And there's a new documentary on him in his life. So this guy that created the Rowing Blazer said, well, maybe I'll create a line of clothes based on the sort of Arthur Ashe look. And he's done that. And what's really smart, and this gets back to the another innovation principle here, is he's tied into a trend. Now, what is that trend? That trend is what? Social giving, right? That's an important trend. We see that as a, as a motivator for millennials. So if you go on to the Arthur Ashe Collection site, now these clothes are expensive. You, know, you can get a, a warm-up jacket for $195 or a, you know, a pair of sweats for $175 or a cap for $60. It's not cheap. But of course, what they're doing is then they're donating monies to the Arthur Ashe Foundation, right? And also Social Change Fund United percentage of their sales goes to that. So again, the principle here is that we want to tie into familiar surprise, but also at the same time tie into a trend, whether it's athleisure or social good or social giving. All right, so let me just turn to Fashion Week now because this is going on in New York City. And uh, if you read the articles about this, uh, a lot of the headlines talk about fashion tech, and so the notion now is that 
tech is being introduced into fashion. For Vogue's 130th year anniversary celebration at uh, Fashion Week this week, they, they, uh, they got together with Snap and they created augmented reality lenses so that people could have this uh, immersive experience in the runway, right? And this is not you know, unique to them. Polo has done similar things. Aloe Yoga, which is uh, luxury wear, right? They, they've done the thing. This is an old idea, but they've made it work. This notion of augmented reality mirrors so you can try stuff on virtually, et cetera, et cetera. My bias is that fashion tech is really just at the first stage here. Now, they're using tech here to promote the ideas uh, to promote their lines, to make it sexy, right? And make it fun and interesting. But as we know, you know, Internet of Things will we'll st- start combining with fashion so that we'll have fashion that makes us uh, potentially healthier, right? Protects us in certain ways, but certainly uh, also uh, they're, they're pioneering efforts now to uh, create fashion that's organic, that sort of you grow fashion, et cetera. So we're just at the beginning of the technology revolution in terms of fashion. So I want to I want to just share one last thing now and go back to this notion of, of tennis core because what they've done is tied into a different trend, a different societal trend. This is the company Rothy's, right? And uh, this is such a clever idea. I just love it. So what they did last year at the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament, they collected 72,000 uh, Evian water bottles at the US Open, 72,000. Then they took all 72,000 of those, you know, cut them up and they cre- they have a 3D knit- knitting process, right? That allows them to create these threads out of the plastics. And from those, they created uh, sneakers, they created a racket bag, they created a sling, et cetera, et cetera. And this year they were selling those uh, products at the US Open, right? You know, I just, I just love this uh, mashing up of familiar surprise, but also frankly, uh, taking stuff and tying into a current trend, right? So for those listeners, I would encourage you, th- this could be done in anything, right? I mean, I, you know, even like in food products. I mean, we, uh, when we did uh, trying to invent a new chip so high cookie, we, we tied into something that also was familiar beside it, besides the Chips Ahoy cookie, which was brownies, mashed those two up, right? And we got brownie Chips Ahoy, which has been a big success for them. So I would encourage the curious and quirky listener to look at uh, societal trends and say, how can we dovetail and mash up with those? So obviously tech is one, fashion tech was one. Sustainability, we just heard about that with Rothy's. Health, right? Is there something that can, can make, in this case, clothes healthier or whatever, but in any area? Education is certainly one, or self actualization, right? And finally, the last one, uh, which is reminiscent of the Arthur Ashe line, is the whole notion of social good. So my, again, my, my challenge to the curious and quirky work uh, listener, can you mash up some of these trends with something that's familiar and surprising for your next hit? Uh, next, I want to pass this over to Ginny. Ginny is our OD guru slash expert, and I, I can't wait to hear what she's going to tell us. Thank you, Brian. My mind is already going thinking about, you know, this notion of fashion and and thinking about tennis core and thinking about, yeah, that's what happened with tracksuits when that became, you know, what is now athleisure. So it just is just very interesting how this all cycles through. So um, the topic that I'm going to speak of today, I'm going to thank Mary for this because she pointed me in the direction of this. Once I connected with it, I found it was everywhere. And and this is uh, something called 
quiet quitting. Yes, I'll repeat that, quiet quitting. So as I said, over the last several weeks, the concept of quiet quitting, this has spread across the the media universe. So NPR actually reported that this latest term actually began on TikTok with a video being uploaded by a 20-something engineer who narrates a 17-second video which has introduced millions of people to this idea. So if you can imagine it, just a 17-second video, and then all of a sudden, this notion is everywhere. So, so what is quiet quitting? Well, it's, it's when you're not outright quitting your job, but you are quitting the idea of going above and beyond. So quiet quitting is not really about quitting, it's like a mindset for just doing the bare minimum on, on your job. So, so what I find curious about quiet quitting is that quiet quitting is making a lot of noise. So, so why is this resonating with so many? You know, is this an extension of the great resignation that we've seen from, from the pandemic? Or maybe a large part of the workforce was always doing the minimum, but now there's new branding and it has alliteration. <laughs> or, or perhaps employees feel more comfortable vocalizing that they're quiet quitting because with firings and layoffs at a record low, people have unprecedented job security. So, so let's dial back to pre-pandemic. So quiet quitting is really not new. It's the rebranding of disengaged and unmotivated employees. And one of the most common drivers of disengagement is when the value scales are out of balance. The scales. On one side of the scale, it's what the employee gives. And on the other side of the scale is what the employer gives in in return. So, So when the scales are out of balance... The employees feel they are giving more than they're getting in return. When they feel undervalued for their contribution and effort. And and when this happens, the employee will either leave or just shut down. And if the employee decides to stay, they will put in their nine to five, but hold back that extra effort. And that extra effort is known as discretionary effort. It's the choice of the employee whether or not they're going to give this extra effort. And this discretionary effort is hugely valuable to the employer. It's valuable to the organization. If the organization loses this discretionary effort, they've lost value. And and it's kind of a direct hit to the bottom line. So then you can ask the question, who is responsible for balancing these scales? And it always comes back to the important role of the manager. And as we know, uh, when employees leave, most of the time, they leave managers, not organizations. So, so we, we really need to understand the role of the manager. And we need to look at both dimensions of, of a manager role. And the important concept here is that a manager is both a manager and a leader. So it may sound confusing, so let me kind of break this down. So, so the manager aspect of the role is responsible for the, the what, 
And it's those things that can be measured and delivered. So the manager makes sure that deliverables are on time, deadlines are met, and quality is achieved. So that's the manager side. And people are mostly comfortable with that. They're comfortable with managing because it can be measured, because it's very tangible. But then there's the leader aspect of the role, which is responsible for the how. And the how are those things which which motivate and inspire. So typically the best leaders we work for, they've invested in our success. They've cared about us. They've instilled our trust. These things are are motivational and, and inspirational. When we think of the best leaders we've ever worked for, we think of terms like, you know, I'd walk through a wall for them, or I would do anything for that leader and then some. And that is discretionary effort. So if we see that employees are quiet quitting, we may just find a lack of leadership. And we can't expect our high performers to automatically be great leaders. Leadership really needs to be a focus. It really needs to be developed and cultivated. And leadership needs to be an expectation. And and when there's such a focus on delivering results, you know, the manager part seems to be an easier focus. However, the inspirational part should be as equally important because of these things like quiet quitting, because of the loss of discretionary effort. That is a direct hit to the bottom line. So we really need to focus on on leadership. So then the question is, what makes um, a motivational and inspirational leader? The leader needs to find out what motivates and inspires the team, what motivates and inspires the individuals on the team, what gets them excited about what they do. What frustrates them about what they do? So great leaders take the time to know their team. The leader is very clear about what they expect from their team, and they understand what the team expects from them. So if your workforce is quiet quitting, take a look at your managers and set the expectation for what I'm going to call loud leading. (laughs) <laughs> so that, that's my brand, <laughs> and it has alliteration. So, <laughs> so with that, I'm going to hand it over to Mary. Thank you, Jenny. You know, I have to tell you, you really did uh, that topic justice. I had never really thought about how manager and leader were different. And I really like the way you define that. And I also like that discretionary effort. You know, you always hear discretionary income, but you never had that, you know, you never have had that in terms of leadership. So thank you. I think we'll probably um, get into that even more at the end. We have a round table and I think Brian's going to ask you a few more questions about that. But Oh, boy. <laughs> Just warning you, Jenny. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I, so I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about something else. I was actually helping my son TJ uh, furnish his college dorm a few weeks ago, and we were um, considering going to Bed Bath and Beyond, but we didn't end up buying anything from there. We went other places. So what is really disappointing is to see a major company that was once the place for you to go to get your bedroom stuff, your bathroom stuff, and dorm stuff, pretty much in shambles. Uh, August 31st, they announced that they were trying to rescue the company 
from bankruptcy. They secured $500 million of financing and they are taking drastic steps to lay off 20% of the employees. They're changing the management structure. They've changed a lot of it. They're closing about 150 stores, including one near us, and slashing several of their in-house brands. So what happened there? This is my curious and quirky topic because we are always trying to decipher what makes a company great. And when they fall, why do they fall? And the lessons that we learn are often very helpful for our clients to either figure out how to strengthen what they're doing or (laughs) to avoid possibly the same thing. So in Bed Bath & Beyond's case, did they become just another company that missed the changing trends like uh, what we saw with Peloton and Netflix? And, you know, are they a company that kind of diluted themselves in our minds? So, So that's my big question. But I'm going to roll it back a little bit and first say it is amazing that this company leveraged changing trends. They were amazing. They were founded as Bed and Bath in 1971 by Leonardo Feinstein and Warren Eisenberg. And it was a small chain that had a specialty linen and bath in New York City when they started to sense that there was a real change that was occurring in retailing. And they told a chain store executive in 93, they said, we had witnessed the department store shakeout and knew that specialty stores were going to be the next wave of retailing. It was the beginning of the designer approach to linens and houseware, and we saw a real window of opportunity. They did great. They expanded and by 1985 started opening superstores. And in an effort to differentiate them from, you know, their increasing competition like linens and thing, they were also trying to address uh, this emerging trend, the cocooning that us baby boomers had gone through. So again, they were responding to the trends. And then according to Funding Universe, uh, they took a less than strong category and made it important by making ordinary household products seem exciting and even romantic. Their marketing strategy included very attentive customer service. They even had senior managers on the floors working working with customers. They had a family atmosphere, word-of-mouth advertising, and their merchandising arrangement was, was quite unique too. They designed it so it was easy for people to find things and also reinforced the perception that they had just a enormous assortment of goods in every color, shape, size. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting is that store managers were giving autonomy. They were allowed to cut prices to meet local competitors, or they could try new things like they could add or create new departments based on what they were seeing with their local market needs. Um, And they changed, by the way, they changed the name and included Beyond in 1987. So they became Bed Bath & Beyond to reflect that superstore format. And they continued to expand and they went public in uh, 1992. So about 20 years after starting the company. And the company reached 2 billion in sales with 300 stores, 43 states with no debt. It was all funded by cash flow by 2000. So they were doing a lot of things very right and really responding to the trends. So now over the past 20 years, they've been business 50 years, so past 20 years, they started shifting their focus and they started doing several acquisitions, including the Christmas tree store, uh, Bye Bye Baby, Cost Plus. That's probably where things started to, to go a little bit strange. And then according to Insider, the CEO, uh, Steve Tamaris, who had served since 2003, so about 16 years, he got ousted in 2019. So pretty recent. The investors said that they, the company leaders 
We're failing to adapt to the modern retail landscape, causing retail sales to tank. So, you know, the CEO got fired because they weren't responding anymore. Then the next CEO came in from Target, uh, Mark Tritton, and uh, he just got ousted too. But in April, he had said, our business has been impacted by the extraordinary macroeconomic factors, such as the derailing of the global supply chain, continued disruption of uh, based on Omicron vi- variant, unprecedented inflation, rising interest rates, the turbulent geopolitical landscape, which have all weighed on customer confidence. Okay, so they pretty much blamed every single possible trend on their demise. And granted, retail is is hard, but Walmart and Target are still doing okay. So it's interesting. And what is ironic about all this is that Bed Bath & Beyond superpower was that they were able to respond to trends for a very long time when they started and all the way through the decades. But in the, in the end, it's probably because that's what's happening now is they just aren't staying up with the times. So what does that mean to you in your business? There's three main, I think, takeaways from this. The first is, is that you may have a trends discipline, but is it something that you're actually um, moving at that rapid pace of change? Are you frequently looking at it? Because it seems like everything is changing faster and faster and you have to be good. You have to stay up with it. The second is, how are you addressing those unlikely events? So there may be something that you're, that as a business you're looking at and they're saying, well, it's, it's, Pretty unlikely, but boy, if it happens, we're really, in, we're toast. So you need to plan for those. So do you have contingency plans in place? And are you, do you have something that you have concepts always in the works that you're always have it like a, a, a laboratory of ideas that you're testing to make sure that when things shift, which they often do, that you're ready. And the third big thing is, is beyond. Um, <laughs> Tom and I cringe when we hear a company say uh, something like, uh, you know, we're going to name our our product or our brand beyond or and more. Well-differentiated products that have a very crisp positioning do very well in turbulent times. So my question to you is, are you possibly diluting your brand with your version of beyond and just making it ill-defined so people really don't understand what you're selling? So I wish you luck with your trends. So I'm going to open up the door now. And uh, Ginny, would you like to ask Brian or I your first? Oh, actually, Brian, you get to ask uh, Ginny a question. Well, actually, let me make a comment about what you just said, Mary, because it was fascinating. We were hired by Coles, actually, to Uh, look at trends and say, and they were succeeding brilliantly at the time and they're still doing well. And so one of the processes we discovered from that by looking at the trends was that there's a lot going on in in the extremes. And what I mean by that was, you know, in in the US, we have, we're much more health conscious and yet the obesity index have, have, have had to be redefined four times because we keep going off the charts, right? Or we're much more interested in green and sustainable, and yet we had record SUV sales. And so what we discovered just as a technique for finding really interesting opportunities is to look at the extremes of things, especially if you're looking for a store within a store. Okay, that's just my comment about that. My, uh, and it was almost a comment for Ginny, you know, I think implicit in what she was saying that there's power in, in, in naming something, right? This notion of quiet quitting, all of a sudden it can become a thing. And I, my advice to the listeners is that, you know, often when we do ideation sessions, we get people to name the ideas because then it all of a sudden becomes a thing. 
and it has power. And it's like, oh my gosh, it also forces you to crystallize the idea. And Ginny, I'd like you just, if you would, to share the opposite of quiet quitting again, because I thought it was wonderful. I called it loud leadership, loud, loud leading. <laughs> yes, loud leading. We love it, right? See, already it's a thing, right? Let's, let's we, we've just done it. I, I've got I've to just put it out there and now we're going to call it something. No, you have to do TikTok. Ginny, you have to do a TikTok on it too. 17 seconds. <laughs> I could see it being an HBR article, which would be sort of a nice sequel to that, you know, sort of iconic article on the difference between managing and leading, right? The HBR mm-hmm. article, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we're looking forward to loud leading. Ginny, <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have any questions for anyone or comments? Well, uh, what was similar to uh, what, what Brian just brought up about quiet quitting was this notion of these other things getting named like tennis core, which makes something that has been happening. And, and as I mentioned, be thinking about it as, as Brian was talking, I was thinking about, yeah, track suits, you know, and, and how that became, a, it still is a fashion. It, it is still, um, you know, taking sports clothing made made for actually athletics and then using it as leisure wear. And, and just like, you know, many of us are walking around in our yoga pants. Uh, <laughs> as we as we go about our day-to-day, we actually leave our homes in them. So it, it's really interesting to me that things that are, are meant for for athletics now, you know, kind of become what, what we just wear. And, and that tennis court, you know, took that and said, we can do that too. <laughs> if, if yoga could do it, if, if uh, track can do it, Sure, we'll, we'll we'll hop on that. I know I'm wearing my tennis skirt out more now. Thanks to Brian. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and if I project 20 years ahead, you know, if we try to think visionary, you know, what what role will fashion play? I mean, I think that fashion um, will be a, an incredible because of the Internet of Things could be an incredible networking vehicle, right? If your fashion somehow shares data with other fashion to talk about mutual interests. And all of a sudden, you know, your, your T-shirt says that person over there is also interested in, in tennis or whatever. I mean, it's a crazy idea. I mean, you could certainly do it with an iPhone or something. But um, the notion that fashion will make us healthier, fashion will make us smarter, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the oper- we're just beginning. This is like, you know, uh, biology and genetics and, and all that's going on in that world. We're just starting out now with that, for sure, I think. I like the fashion tech that you were talking about. I think that, I mean, we've already started to see that we all wear monitors now, you know, that um, some aren't as uh, lovely as others. But, you know, even clothing, like you said, you know, there's clothing now to keep your posture straight. You know, it gives you a zap if you don't sit up straight. <laughs> I don't know how fashionable those t-shirts are, but able to wear wear something that helps you in some way, I think it's going to be really interesting over the next 10 to, to 50 years. Yeah. I mean, there's clothing that blocks UV rays. A friend of mine, you know, is very sensitive to the sun and she is searching for clothing blocks UV rays, which is which is back to the health example that that you gave. So so very interesting on that. And also repels insects, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and detects cancer. You know, it's like it just heats up and says, OK, you got cancer here. <laughs> 
<laughs> why, you laugh, that's pretty funny. <laughs> why not? Why not? Right. Um, the other thing I wanted to comment on was um, the TikTok. Ginny, it is scary what TikTok is doing. In fact, Brian and I have a group. We're going to talk about this more because it used to be like a consumer kid thing. And it is amazing how, you know, it's it's so prevalent in all of business now that, you know, even, you know, John Deere probably has a good TikTok out because TikTok is is a really nice format. I, my, my daughter, Sophia, was able to tell me all about England's politics because she watched TikToks and said, well, this is what Liz Truss is going to do. This is what the Queen's been doing. I mean, it's scary. I just I just think that a history teacher should put all of their history stuff on TikToks and then, you know, <laughs> then kids will pay attention during history and math classes. <laughs> yeah, and this notion of sort of the... Um the freedom or their creativity inherent in limitations, right? The fact that TikTok is short, right? But there's tremendous creative stimulus and potential, you know, greatness in the, that it's shorter, right? And 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 so that's a whole nother way to think is like, what is what are the limitations do in terms of opportunity, creative opportunities, if you will? Yeah. Right? I have, um, I, we have a couple of comments that just came in and I really appreciate. Um, thank you for, for giving us your comments. This is LinkedIn users. I don't know who you are, but thank you. It says, my takeaway is the importance of branding, whether it's clothing, retail or leadership. Yes. I think it helps the consumer understand your product and, you know, whether consumer in B2B or in the consumer world. I agree. And I like loud leadership, Ginny. And then uh, somebody, then they said, how about leading loudly? They like that one too. So I think I'm getting pressured to do the TikTok. I, I, I think uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to have to do that. Uh, but you know, it's, it's interesting because the branding puts something at the forefront, something that's kind of, you know, we take for granted and it's out there. But if you give it a new brand, it now is something to talk about. You know, that that's, you know, making me think about the kind of the leading loudly. We we kind of expect we have leaders, but but do we really? And are they leading loudly? But uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to think about that. Yeah, and Brian, <laughs> you got a shout out too. Um, they really like that combination of familiar and surprise. So that's um, one of your next of many books, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I it's it's certainly a creative prompt that we use to try to say, are we? You know, are we getting there? Have we looked at all the possible ideation opportunities? I, I just, I can't get this leading loudly thought out of my head. And I wonder if because social media is so important that we, it's incumbent on leaders, you know, not to be milquetoast, quiet people, that, but to frankly step out there. It takes courage, right? And so, you know, more Churchills, right? Because uh, in these times, A, we're over-communicated, but to inspire, we do have to lead loudly, I think. The days of the sort of quiet manager behind the scenes manipulating everything. I think in these times of social media, we the true leaders will have to be stepping up even more so than they might be um, and, and not making excuses. <laughs> geopolitical. Well, well, it's true. And, and, you know, the other thing is, too, leadership is a legacy. And um, if, if we don't have those loud leaders, uh, it's to, to really develop the next generation of leaders as well, because they won't have those role models to look at. So we, we really need to, to have that. You know, Ginny, I, I, the only thing that I'm going to say on that is, is sometimes some of the role models uh, have expired. So, you know, I'm almost wondering what this next generation is going to do. And, you know, they're already on the right track with a lot of a lot of the ways that they want the world to go. So, you know, I'm okay if a few role models die. I mean, not literally, but 
you know, the, the idea of, <laughs> of an old role model. <laughs> well, well, let me let me put it differently uh, to get us off of the old role model. Something I do when, when I'm, I'm working with new managers and new leaders is, is ask them a very simple question, which is, you know, when you think of a leader in your life, it could be anything, it could be a teacher, it could be someone at work, it could be a family member. But when you think of a leader that's had the most impact on you, who are they? Think about them and think about one characteristic that has had that positive impact on your on your life. And they won't say things like they made a lot of money. You know, they always delivered on time. You know, they were the smartest person I ever knew. The answer you always get back are those how characteristics. They cared about me. They fostered my development. They, you know, all those all those things that really it's about how you treat people. That is that legacy that does have that lasting impact that does inspire people. So the inspiration is really about those, what I call those how factors. And Ginny, just to build on that, I would say, you know, a lot. some of the work we're now doing is in the area of values in order to actually set the stage for true innovation. Because you, A, you want to be, you know, fishing in the right areas, so to speak. You want to be strategically aligned. But also you want the passion of the people involved because innovation yes. is really hard. And so we need to uh, sort of root those in the values. And then you get that extra, what did you call it? That sort of... Um, discretionary effort. <laughs> yeah. It's all about, we come full circle here, that yeah. discretionary effort that's based on uh, values and... Um, you know, sort of being true to human human greatness and ethical behavior. So um, I'm going to, Jenny, you have some homework to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of, besides writing your book and doing a TikTok, one of, uh, an, another person had said, um, I would love to get more information about the new leadership in the world of remote only work and what are the leadership skills needed to lead remotely. So um, I think, you know, if anyone wants to send Jenny a quick email directly, your email, I think our emails are all in, well, they'll be in the post, right? And, um, and then you can respond directly to that, or that may be something that you do in your next talk. Yeah, I was actually asked by an editor at a Simon Schuster division to write a book on that, and I and I got nothing. So, uh, <laughs> so maybe you guys. Okay. I wish I could say there was. I wish I could say there was a, a silver bullet into leading remotely because everyone I think is looking for one, but um, but there but there but there are certain techniques that that can be used. So one last comment, and then I'm going to wrap us up. One of the one of the comments that we just got in here is is that there's also a downside to branding, which is what we're uh, contending with with respect to quiet quitting. Once it goes viral, it loses its potency. So you know what? You got to keep coming up with new stuff. <laughs> Make up something new while you're lazy at work. So um, thank you so much for all the comments. We really appreciate it. Made it much more interactive. So thank you for all and joining us. And um, our curious and quirky goes live every third uh, Friday of the month. So the next one that we hope that you'll join us for is October 21st. And we're going to have a lot more great topics, maybe even some of the ones that you've been asking us about. So <laughs> we'll see you then. Thank you very much. Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast-paced, five-minute-per-speaker, oh yeah, take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, 
future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education.